0: This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast. Ken and Robin talk about stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include. Hopelessness. Is it good? The Amber Room. Directionless protagonists. And the Vatican's Time Viewer.
1: You've perfected the do si You've mastered the mashed potato. You know your dance crew is the hottest around, but now it's time to prove it.
0: Breakdancing Meeples is a real-time dexterity game of, you guessed it, Breakdancing Meeples
1: Designed by Ben Moy and published by our friends at Atlas Games
0: To play roll your meeple dance crew as fast as you can over and over
1: Lock in useful rolls and re-roll the rest to complete dance routines and score points
0: After four one-minute dance rounds the crew with the most crowd appeal wins the trophy Breakdancing
1: Meeple comes in a metal tin that's nearly as indestructible as your high school boombox
0: It plays two to four people ages six and up in five minutes Find
1: Breakdancing Meeple at your friendly local game store or at atlas-games.com backslash
0: breakdancing. Because when beats bump, meeple's gotta dance.
1: The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive, welcome us once more into the gaming hut. But no, that's not Peter Frampton. Robin, That's that's New Order or Joy Division <laughs> up there on oh the dear. wall. And they're not coming alive at all. Oh, no. This is terrible. All of our miniatures are just lying on their backs. They seem all very our...
0: dejected, those miniatures.
1: Yeah, they're like, you know, cast in a slump. Uh, because beloved Patreon backer Ross Ireland has asked, How important is the capacity or perceived capacity for victory in an ongoing game? Is there any value in permanent hopelessness. Robin, is there any value in permanent hopelessness?
0: Um, If you and all of your players together want to have something that is permanently hopeless and want it to go on over a period of many sessions, the question then is, uh, there's still got to be a victory condition in there somewhere, it's just a different one. And I think, first of all, in that sentence, the if you and all of your players part of that last passage is doing a lot of work. Right. So I'd question do you really have five to six people who want to explore hopelessness over a long uh, period of time? Right. Because uh, even works of art that are extremely dure and downbeat, uh, other than I guess the writings of Thomas Ligotti, mm-hmm. have <laughs> levels to them, right? The reason that we, uh, the thing that, according to the beat analysis system that I write about in Hamlet's Hit Points and Beating the Story, is that uh, when we experience a story, we uh, oscillate between hope and fear that there's something we want to have happen in the narrative and something that we fear will happen in the narrative. And if you have no hope, if everything is just always a downbeat, and it is predictably a downbeat, if you know everything is always uh, going to uh, go to heck in a handbasket, you lose not only engagement, but you also lose suspense. Because you uh, are feeling uh, down, and uh, also you know what's going to happen. And so the contrast with that is, and and uh, Ross cleverly writes, ongoing game. We're all familiar with the convention environment where you all decide that your Trail of Cthulhu characters are going to be eaten at the end of the three- to four-hour session, and that's fun. That's sort of an ironic victory condition of how do I get everybody creamed? But beyond that, I think we're entering the realm of an extended Aesthetic experiment, right?
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I want to briefly parenthesize and say that the experience of reading someone like Ligotti or even a less unalterably bleak but still downbeat horror writer like Ramsey Campbell, the story beats are not so much hope and fear. They're the fear you already have versus a new fear. So, it's versus understanding versus surprise are almost the beats. my
0: hope is, I hope things don't get even worse. Worse. My hope is that
1: it's only going to be a bug. And my fear, when it's revealed, is, oh, it's actually all of the universe. And, And I think that that maybe is a whole different segment, but it points us toward the question of victory, which draws a difference, I think, between local victories and ongoing victory and a local victory, of course, with an ongoing uh, career of hopelessness is literally every Call of Cthulhu game. Mm -hmm. And obviously Call of Cthulhu is well suited for ongoing play because it's been ongoing played with great success, aesthetic and ludical since 1981. And the secret there is to reframe victory as we won today, we won tonight, we saved this block of Arkham, we saved this one nice old man, we, you know, stopped this thing from being even worse than it would have been. And those sorts of victories, since they map fairly strongly to the kinds of victories that are possible in the actual world, I feel are, are a reward in and of themselves. And that recalibrating yourself to experience those as victories is actually kind of good practice for the rest of your life, as opposed to expecting that every door you kick in will uh, have an easily defeated monster and delicious treasure, when in fact, that's not very many doors at all. So, ongoing permanent hopelessness is, in one sense, the human condition, and it's certainly the human condition absent the consolations of religion, I guess. So, there would better be value in it, because we're all stuck there. Robin, this is turning into a Season one, true detective hut, more than a gaming hut. <laughs> yes. Do we have any specific thoughts on how to
0: game this situation besides play Call
1: of Cthulhu for eight
0: years? Well, I, I think the thing that makes that, that makes hopelessness sustainable over the long term is uh, ironic detachment. Uh, so paranoia is another example where you uh, it is supposed to be terrible. And, uh, you know, victory is some of your clones make it out of the briefing room alive and you Mm -hmm. get into scene one of the scenario. Um, and so obviously the, the leavening agent there is a satirical humor so that you're expecting things again to go terribly wrong and you embrace that. Uh, again, the question is how long does anybody play paranoia over a sustained period? Some people play serious paranoia. Uh, And their characters do make it out of the briefing room and it has campaign play. But I think those people are playing a more standard dystopian science fiction world where, uh, again, uh, as in Call of Cthulhu, there is ambient despair. uh, But you have a localized hope that you have some chance of uh, having some momentary temporary victory within the uh, constraints of the uh, scenario, the procedural element, but you know you don't expect to be able to destroy the computer and to turn the dystopia into a uh, a utopia um, certainly, there are uh, story games with dark subject matter and you don't expect those to turn into sort of uh, aspirational fun zone but again, I think uh, you are shifting your goal not to the procedural goal of do the characters succeed but what is our artistic goal of making whatever point it is that we're trying to uh, explore in the course of this narrative? And again, of course, with story games, ongoing play is usually not the feature. So, right. you know, I am re- I am struggling to come up with examples of things where there is no hope on any level. There certainly, I've heard, of, you know, there are D&D campaigns or uh, fantasy uh, F20 world campaigns where the point is that it's very difficult and it's a hard slog uh you know there is a long-running campaign that used to be written about in the uh, wild hunt fanzine and the motto for that is and then you die face down in the mud was the uh, slogan for this campaign and the idea was that you would your characters kept dying all the time and then you would generate a new character and they would go along for another little while and then they would Die face down in the mud. Something on the Black Company Warhammer fantasy
1: sort of uh, spectrum, not the straight up D and D spectrum,
0: right? And uh, or certainly it was that ethos applied it to mm. so something sort of more standard fantasy than Renaissance fantasy. But it, at, at any rate, even there, your the idea that your characters are disposable, as they are in paranoia, or as they are in this style of play, there is an inherent victory condition in okay how long do I keep this character alive for before they die face down in the mud? So I I think there's always some sort of victory condition because victory is why are we doing this? Why are we telling a procedural story at all? Right. And I'm having trouble, you know, again, until somebody pays you to do the the Thomas Ligotti role-playing game. uh, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> which I'm sure you would kid out for extensive campaign
1: play. Absolutely. Time. Yes. That, 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 if there's anything better than being inside Thomas Ligotti's head for the length of a short story, it's being inside the Thomas Ligotti's head for five to seven years. That's the best right. kind of play. And the
0: word short story is also a, a key. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I think perhaps why, why you, uh, he is not best experienced reading a whole bunch of his short stories all in a row in an anthology, but coming uh, back to them over time, because again, it's the same Uh, the same tone and it doesn't have the up and down beats.
1: Right. I think that you can also talk about games that have a similar I guess it's sort of the average between your Call of Cthulhu sort of uh, local victories and your Uh, Warhammer fantasy die in the mud, but slightly later victories. And that's your sort of doomed struggle games that are not about a philosophical universe, but are the equivalent of watching a long form tragedy. Um, So if a individual story game with a uh, dark uh, or a pessimistic theme becomes like watching, you know, King Lear, Another sort of a, a a game might be watching a, a television series that is a tragedy. Uh you're breaking bads or whatever. And so when you watch when you're playing a game, and I've heard of games of, uh, for example, Legend of the Five Rings, but I'm sure this could be extended to all manner of of sorts of play where your characters are uh, the last uh, heroes standing. You know, your, your cause was defeated by the dark lord. Your, your daimyo is dead. And now you're, you know, you're, you're, you've decided not to go Ronan, You've decided just to be, uh, cut down and as his last retainers. And it's sort of a survival horror, uh, quality to it in that you are moving from, you know, place one to place two, the theoretical refuge. And so while you know as players, and this is where ironic detachment comes in that there is no refuge, you won't reach it that this is just about dying bravely within every individual session there can be tactics and choices and maybe you know it, it you're you're it's not impossible victory like it is in Call of Cthulhu you're never going to like blow up as thoth but you might in a more conventional game you might actually uh, be so good at uh making every move by the enemy count that you do reach some sort of uh, plausible a uh, victory you know you find the one mountaintop where the dark lord can't reach or you find you know your your way to an island where the the shogun's power has no uh has no way to get to you or whatever something uh, the you know the the mythical refuge in all zombie movies uh you know the american island airbase or something and so you have that as a as a lodestar even though you as players are ironically detached enough to know that Unless literally everything breaks right and you're super smart and you don't lose all of your shotgun ammunition in the first adventure, you are, you're not going to get there. That only exists as hope for the player characters, not for the players. And I think that that can be rewarding. And I've heard of games like that that people play. Deliberately exploring this sort of what are our characters' heroism like in the face of tragedy, as opposed to in the face of nihilism, which is a different question for a uh, Call of Cthulhu play or the Legati role playing game, Legati Shoe, coming soon, no doubt.
0: And you could certainly have a game where there is no procedural hope, but there is still dramatic interest. So you could do a drama system game set on a spaceship which has gone off course and inevitably at a certain point. Uh, you know that the ship is going to run out of fuel and just keep going and it'll never get home or just even, you know, you've still got fuel until you all die, right? But there's yeah. no way you'll ever get home. And then it becomes not about that, but about the relationships between the characters. And you can still have uh, hope and fear uh, for you hope that people uh, achieve positive relationships with each other. And you fear that their relationships will disintegrate. That's not victory per se, but, Uh, that's more like taking the question of victory off the table in order to explore a different style of storytelling. Um, And I think, at this point, I think everybody's hoping (laughs) that they're now going to get to uh, hear another exciting commercial message, uh, but they're fearing uh, whatever possible menacing hut might be waiting on the other side. Hey, 13th
1: Age Adventurers. Whether your one unique thing is a robot hand or a deck of many futures,
0: whether you're friends with the Diabolist or frenemies with the Great Gold Worm,
1: all are eventually drawn to one dark lure the Underworld.
0: The vast and mysterious realms that lie beneath the Dragon Empire. Deep within the Underworld lie adventure and treasure, as well as disaster and death. But what is reward without risk? With the book of the Underworld, designer Gareth Ryder Hanrahan reveals the Underworld secrets for Thirteenth Age, including... The lands of the Underworld,
1: the Underland, the kingdoms of the Hollow Realms, and what lies within the deeps.
0: The mighty dwarven city of Forge. The domains of the Silverfolk El. The Threats of Malice, the Drowfort, and the Four Kingdoms of the Mechanical Sun. Forgotten Gods, the Gnome Academy of Magic, Monsters, Magic Treasure, and more. For a limited time,
1: get 10% off in print or PDF at the Pelgrane Store with a voucher code STUFFWORLD.
0: You will need the extra gold pieces for ropes and pulleys. That's the Book of the
1: Underworld for 13th Age, voucher code STUFFWORLD at pelgranepress.com.
0: The beautiful appointments, the uh, glow of uh, candlelight, and uh, the work of fine artisans tell us that we are once more in the history hut. But this time around, the history hut, I think, is as beautiful as it has ever been. It is a triumph of uh, uh, craftsmanship uh, because beloved patron banker Mikey Ham says that he has uh, heard an episode of Endless Thread about the Amber Room, and uh, although uh, he found that very interesting, they left. Uh, speaking of leaving things on the table, they left like some curses and stuff on the table. And so uh, he would like us to uh, give the Cardus version of the Amber Room, which requires us to explain to everyone else uh, just what that is. And as you might guess, it is a resplendent room finished in gilt and all sorts of other rich uh, substances, but also primarily amber. And it was commissioned in 1701 for uh, Charlottenburg Castle in Uh, Berlin or uh, Charlottenburg Palace, I should say, Uh, but was actually then wound up being installed in Berlin City Palace. And then it was uh, had a brief life in Berlin before Peter the Great was given it as a gift. And uh, Ken, this is the point where you're going to pick up the story for us.
1: Okay, it's uh, basically a a gesture of alliance between uh, King Frederick Wilhelm I of Prussia to Peter the Great. Peter the Great, at that point, has just beaten the Swedes and is the new guy to make happy in the Baltic, so losing your amber room, your 600-square-foot amber room, is a small price to pay for an eastern front that won't make trouble, and that is by the way laying pipe for what is about to happen uh in our story it'll take like 150 years yeah, in so real if life. you
0: don't have a princess to to, to hand over um uh, make with an amber room
1: make with an amber room and he puts it in the uh catherine palace in Tsarskoya Selo, salo which is a royal it's like the versailles of saint petersburg they they add more amber because romanovs have no taste and so they got like Medici amber panels and other, anything that had amber on the wall, they dragged it up to Tsarskoye Selo and and slammed it into the amber room.
0: It, it said amber room. It's a room to put your amber. Right. It's where you put
1: your amber. Someone brings a bunch of amber to Catherine the Great and says, where should I put the amber? And she says, we literally have a room for it. Put it there. Uh So, by the time that they're done assembling it, uh the czars have assembled six tons of amber, which if you've ever held amber, it's not a heavy resin. It's not a heavy substance. So that's a lot of amber. And then that Eastern Front nonsense comes back into play. The Nazis invade Russia. And when they get to Tsarskoye Selo, they loot the amber room and pull it off the walls and carry it back and reassemble it in Königsberg, uh, which is in East Prussia, or was at that yes. point in East Prussia. There's more of that story coming. Right.
0: And, and, and when the Germans were coming, there was some thought to, well, how do we hide the Amber Room? Let's put wallpaper on it, but that's all you can do. It's, an, it's a famous treasure <laughs> and, and, of the world. And, and, and that didn't work. It did not work. <laughs> no. So,
1: uh it took uh, only 36 hours to disassemble the Amber Room, which seems fast. They brought it to uh, Koenigsberg, like I say. They built it up and uh were showing it off to the townsfolk of Koenigsberg. And then... It turns out the war kept going and b- before you can say boo, the red army is outside Königsberg, and everyone has run around in a circle saying, Oh, we probably should have repacked the Amber room for shipment to a salt mine or something. Uh, Konigsberg is, what do I want to say? Uh, firebombed by the Royal air force in 1944. It is then cut off by Soviet tanks of the red army uh, in 1945. At some point, keeping track of the Amber Room was not anyone's priority, and when the rubble had settled and the smoke had cleared, there was no more Amber Room. Its uh, curator was a guy named Dr. Alfred Rohde, and when they asked him what happened to the Amber Room, it turned out he was dead of typhus. He died of typhus while in Russian captivity in December of 1945, Uh right before they could ask, what happened to the Amber Room. And so, there have been speculation that it was carried off on a boat. The uh, Wilhelm Gustloff, which was an enormous ocean liner that evacuated lots and lots of people uh, from uh, Königsberg and lots and lots of goods and was sunk by a Soviet submarine. Or possibly, people are now speculating, it might have been the Karlsruhe, which was another ocean liner that left uh, Königsberg and was sunk by a Soviet plane. So, the Amber Room is very possibly scattered over the floor of the Baltic if it wasn't already obliterated by either the bombing or the artillery of the uh attack on and siege of Königsberg. And so most people, when they look at what Königsberg was like in uh, January of 1945, and they're asked, where are the six tons of flammable material? Uh, I think the answer would be, oh, it was set on fire at some point. I So the mystery of the Amber Room has always struck me as, someone really wanting there's to still be an Amber room and there are yes. bits of Amber room mosaics that were looted at one point or another during its peregrination that people have found. But the whole Amber room is, um uh well, who knows where it is. Uh, there is a, my favorite conspiracy theory is that Stalin had a fake Amber room built that was just like the real Amber room and hid the real Amber room somewhere in Russia, in Siberia, and then shot the guy who knew where it was. So that it's sitting out somewhere, uh, just like an amber sickle, waiting for someone to find it. Uh, That is probably not true. Because, again, Stalin, if he had that kind of planning, he wouldn't have been caught with his pants down uh, during Operation Barbarossa. So there we are.
0: Well, maybe he was distracted by making arrangements for the Amber Room and, like, wasn't attending to the war effort. Hanging out in the Amber Room. (laughs) Yeah. And so uh, there's an idea, of course, that there's a curse associated uh, with this. I think that, first of all, Rodi and his wife dying of typhus uh is uh, not promising cursed material. I hate to be a pun <laughs> no. here, but dying of typhus while in Soviet custody at the end of World War two. Uh, I think is uh not strange or mysterious, to go to all in there
1: no if if that 's true, the amber room curse claimed about a million people, <laughs> so i don't think that's what it was uh, there is a uh german uh soldier former Wehrmacht guy named Georg Stein, who became a professional i assume roustabout and problem maker, but he called himself an amber room hunter, and at some point he was murdered was found in a forest near Munich in nineteen eighty seven with his stomach slit open. And I'm pretty sure they weren't looking for the amber room in his stomach. I think that might have just been he got up someone's nose about an entirely unrelated matter. Uh but he was an amber room guy who did die mysteriously. Right. And then there's another uh fellow who died mysteriously.
0: Yeah. There are a lot of people in in that era of history uh uh, did not want things revealed about what what was going on mm-hmm. so yeah. there's
1: a lot of questions to be asked about konigsberg i'm sure that no one wants to know among them why is it kaliningrad and is it still kaliningrad and is it going to stay kaliningrad and even the people of kaliningrad are maybe sometimes asking that question but right now uh who can say and then in 1992 a general a russian general named yuri gusev uh, died in a car crash after allegedly talking to a journalist about the Amber Room. First, there's no proof that he was the journalist source. Second of all, he was uh, like the number two man in the GRU, and the rest of the GRU were pretty sure that he was murdered for GRU-related reasons. It was office problems, <laughs> not Amber Room problems. So again, being mysteriously murdered as a GRU officer and dying of typhus that it's not quite, you know, the mysterious mosquito bite that infects you and you die in a week. It's not the death will come on swift wings. Death will come with a lot of other death for people who hide the Amber Room. So the curse of the Amber Room is that asking about it might make uh, the the uh, then KGB mad at you.
0: Right, so. and, and the sorts of people in that world are the sorts of people who sometimes end up on the floor of a barbarian forest with their uh, stomachs a open. Um, exactly, and so. For game purposes then, so is there any sort of reason uh, historically to think that there's something uh, magical or curse related uh, uh, about the Amber Room? Because uh, I can see, you know, applying a curse to King Tut, to even to the idea of buried pirate treasure. You can imagine pirates who are hiding their treasure, slap a curse on that, keep people away, that all makes sense. But it doesn't seem like there's any particular occult significance to the Amber Room that would... uh, lead it to curse people and it's not you know a a sacred artifact it's a profane artifact right if you really revere the fact Mm -hmm. that uh previous authoritarian rulers sucked a lot of money out of their countries and put it into uh, luxury goods it's like it's beautiful decorative art but that doesn't seem all that uh, resonant so it seems more to me that unless you've got something secretly aleptonic up your sleeve that really it's more of a matter of the milieu of uh, spies and military officers that uh, suggests, uh, you know, sort of a, a shadow world where people get knifed rather than uh, one in which uh, spirits of revenge uh, crawl out of the grave. I mean, I guess the best possibility is less that
1: there is a Medici and uh, that hints at dark near doings, than it's just a big old room full of amber and that amber is itself Magical and weird because amber, of course, first of all, um, it's the tears of Apollo. So it's got God power in it. Um, you have what happens when trees cry, right? That much amber together possibly acts as a resonator or some sort of device because, of course, the Greeks discovered electricity by rubbing amber against a cloth and noticed that it generated sparks. So amber acts as a reservoir, a capacitor for Electrica. And so one can imagine a acoustic combination of, of panels or a geometric combination of panels that when knocked or wrapped the right way, sets up an acoustic vibration of the sort that the Lumurians might have used or, or whatever it is you want to pretend. And so it's not so much that the amber, you know, reveals a secret, although that's easy enough to pretend it does, but that that much amber itself acts as a communication box to talk to the Lemurians or the god Apollo or the Hyperboreans or whomever it is that you believe might be contacting you via some sort of weird, uh, Electrica uh, uh, vibrations and, and radiations. And so it's, it's not so much the art as it is the fact that you have a big old amber sounding box that is the important thing.
0: And it also just seems that if you have characters who are doing things that require them to creep around Bavarian forests or keep up with what uh, gru officers are doing that i am searching for the amber room is a great cover for all sorts of other operations right for the thing that you're actually talking about
1: using the amber room for example either as your cover or as the cover for a conspiracy that you're investigating and you're you're looking into the uh, you know this guy who gets knifed in bavaria or the mysterious doings of the gru and when you find this shadowy conspiracy that crosses national boundaries, their story is, oh, we're looking for the Amber Room. But you discover that they're using that as a, as a symbol or, a, or a, an excuse to cover up their actual occult investigations into the UFO that crashed in Poland in 1939 or something.
0: And that, I, I guess, uh, if we want to have a sort of an exotic uh, explanation, we could say that uh, a certain amount of, out of amber comes from space. That perhaps uh, the original makers of the Amber Room found an amber UFO and uh, chopped it up for bits. And it's the uh, the ultra terrestrials from that uh, uh, amber dimension who want to uh, come back. And they, you know, they arranged for the uh, uh, bits to be spirited away uh, during the uh, World War Two and uh, and want to pick up all the pieces. And they're still mad at uh, Frederick and everybody else who uh, who messed up their perfectly good UFO by uh, chopping it up and turning it into a very attractive uh, Renaissance-style room.
1: And as we know, uh, Professor Michael Crichton has explained to us that amber contains insects from the mysterious and ancient past, and maybe they contain dinosaur DNA, but I think if you have mysterious time insects... One piece of it is from the future and is, uh, contains a coleopteran beetle with the great race of Yith mind imprint in it. And then you can use it to communicate with the great race of Yith. Or conversely, that as you suggest, there's Yagothic amber in uh, one of the uh, ceiling parts. And if you look, you can see the imprint of a, of a Migo foot or something else up there in uh, the amber. And you can use that. To maintain a resonant communication with uh, the Migo or with yugath and, and the Migo being fluttering around in mysterious mountain ranges in Eastern Europe, is I think really sort of their uh, their stopping grounds. If you put a, a Migo in the in the mountains of uh, Silesia, where those uh, Nazis were doing all their other mysterious uh high energy exp- uh, physics experiments, I, I think that's a, a good possibility that the Amber Room accidentally is said like the Nazis, of course, screw everything up. And they accidentally set up a resonant wave in 1945 when they're c- contacting Yuggeth that activates the Amber Room because it's got all of that, you know, uh, electrica in it. And uh, now if you find any piece of the Amber Room, you're that much closer to being able to recreate the carrier wave that talks to Yuggeth.
0: Uh Well, speaking of resonant communication, there can be no communication more resonant than the exciting commercial message you're about to hear, beyond which lies another segment and or hot. The Best of Askfageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled... and six guns role playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather, Varmint, in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that.
1: That's the best of Asphageln on Drive Through. Assure that victory remains possible for this podcast by joining such
0: beloved Patreon backers as Alex Johnston, Corey Welch, David Mascari, Fred Kish, and Jeremy French.
1: The rattle of keys on the IBM Selectric, the glug of mid-priced bourbon into the jelly jar, welcome us once more to that most professional of huts where we learn how to write good. And today, in uh, the How to Write Good, we'll talk about the protagonist and what happens when they are not pro-anything and barely even tag. Robin protagonists that don't do anything are now the hallmark of basic cable prestige drama series. But in addition to wasting everyone's valuable time there, they also show up in other works. And is there any reason to have a a, a lump of a protagonist? And if so, how do you avoid making him not so uh, annoying as all of the ones on TV?
0: Right. And I happen to have seen a couple of films recently where there was a, uh, a directionless protagonist. And uh, this is done often intentionally, often when you have like a a teen or college age person. And the idea is you're telling the story of how somebody found their path in life. And that uh, seems like a reasonable choice since it mirrors an actual thing that happens to people all the time. There's lots of folks who uh, don't know what they want to do until they finally discover it. And then they go do that. But I'm here to propose that that is almost always fatally uninteresting in (laughs) narrative and central to any dramatic storytelling. uh, And here we're talking about mostly about dramatic stuff. It's less of a problem in procedural, but we'll get to get to that. (laughs) It's a problem
1: in procedural storytelling too, Robin.
0: Well, there's an asterisk. We'll get to the asterisk, but the idea with a dramatic character is that they're torn between uh, two poles. And often in a directionless protagonist, it is a story of the person experiencing an awakening Of purpose and uh, moving from not so much selfishness to altruism because that is a classic pattern that you see in Casablanca and a zillion other uh, popular narratives, but more between directionlessness and action. And that is a problem if that's the thing that happens at the end of your story because to once again go back to how narrative works, uh, when you engage with the narrative, you have uh, a hope for what you hope the protagonist will do and a fear for what they will uh, fail to do. But if they, the protagonist is not strongly attached to a hope or a fear, if they do not have a thing that they really want to do, but are just sort of bouncing through life, waiting for something to grab them by the scruff of the neck and draw them in, then you, the audience, don't have a reason to be compelled and to be rooting for one thing or another to happen. Or sometimes you'll see a story where the character has two potential paths in life but they're just sort of passively being drawn toward each of them until they finally pick one at the end. And that also, again, is a problem because the end, the moment when the protagonist develops a strong motivation and goal, that's the beginning of your story, right. not the end of your story. There's there's a reason The Hobbit doesn't open with 13 chapters
1: of Bilbo just sitting around being a hobbit. Right. You know, Tolkien kills that in a paragraph, and then dwarves show up and the story starts.
0: Yes, and, and I recall actually that, yes, The Lord of the Rings actually... <laughs> Does take a while to get going, but that's that's a digression for another day. Uh, at any right. rate, a better way to do that if you if you have a character who you know they have two paths in life, they should be passionately pulled, they should have a, a contradictory desires that pull them. they both want to do A and B, not that they're not sure whether they want to do a and b and more charismatic people are pulling them along uh because the other thing about a directionless protagonist is they're not passionate yet they don't care much about anything they're not the stronger character in the story often there's a mentor or a tempter or a, a sort of tour guide who are leading the the character uh, through uh in in the matrix uh neo doesn't know he's the Messiah right away, but everybody at the very beginning of that story shows up and tells him he's the Messiah <laughs> and mm-hmm. tells him to get his Messiah shoes on and get moving. Right. And even
1: and even the extent to which he's a directionless protagonist is obviated very early when uh the Mr. Smiths start hunting him. And it's like, well, you may have been directionless now, but now you're not because you gotta get away from them. And good thing you fell in with us, you know, cool kids in the black trench coats.
0: Yes, and that—that that is another way to do it, is to have a powerful counterforce that, as forces do, forces the issue, requires uh, the character to uh commit to survival if nothing else and through the desire to survive uh then you have a hope i hope i survive you have a fear i think i may not survive and then as you move toward that you experience your awakening and so i think that's a much stronger way to do the awakening story which uh is a staple of uh western literature if if not world literature and uh gives the character some other reason why they need to move on uh, and not just sort of be bobbing along uh, like a cork. Are you thinking of particular characters, uh, Ken, when you talking about uh, basic cable and uh, characters being directionless?
1: I mean, my, my classic example for this, my go-to example, although a lot of people didn't see it for the excellent reason that it was boring, is the spy show Rubicon, which had a character who whose life goal was to not get himself... Uh, involved in any of the spy mystery that was going on around him, and to <laughs> resent it dully and hatefully when it when he did. But you can, I mean, for example, that's really what Daredevil is in the whole second season of Daredevil. He's the directional protagonist. He
0: becomes a sullen crime. He's baby. literally
1: Daredevil. There's angry ninjas running around. There's Electra showing up, and literally all Daredevil does is he just, you know, whines about being Daredevil, and every so often, bounces around on a rooftop. But it's it, it's just like pushing your head through suet to watch these things.
0: And I take it. You didn't make it to season three. because I did boy, not make it to season three. That double because down on it said Daredevil right up
1: there on the front. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, by then they they burned all of my love of Daredevil. And that was that was a, an amber room worth of love of Daredevil, if I may put it that way.
0: Because um, that first season was, was great.
1: Uh, well, as as were all the comic books, <laughs> he's a great character. It's like ruining Batman, for God's sake. And for and say what you want about bad Batmans, they don't make Batman directionless, they just make it loopy and ridiculous. And that you can suffer a lot easier, I find, than a protagonist that doesn't know what they want to do or, or, or
0: won't do anything, right? Right, and that brings us to another reason for why characters are made directionless, uh, as opposed to just having them be about young people who have not fully become themselves yet. To just go back to that point, phone me when they become themselves, you know? Give me a call. I'll join that in progress. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, uh, the other thing is just the time-honored problem of writers trying to keep the ending further away from the beginning. It's just wheel spinning. It's like, yeah, let's let's have him moat for four episodes so that we can just stretch out the season order. Or you could create a plot and have things happen uh, and have a procedural. Uh, which brings us to the whole uh, procedural issue because, of course, Daredevil, although that show, like a lot of others these days, has that problem of mixing up dramatic and procedural storytelling without really understanding the structure of that. And so you get to the point of his dramatic contradiction is, is he daredevil or does he not want to be daredevil? It's like, Oh, okay. Again, that's directionlessness. Do you want to be yourself or or not? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where we get to that. Uh, one of our bet noire on the show, good old Joseph Campbell and the hero's journey. And the idea that the refusing the call is somehow a super important uh, part of the quest some valid like,
1: or important or even a very big part of the myths he took it from. No. <laughs> yes. The answer is no, if you were asking. If you're noting at home, if, if is Joseph Campbell right? The answer is always
0: no. And so uh, if you find yourself writing, well, what if I have the part where he's really reluctant to go and do the No, don't do that. He is not reluctant to do the thing. He is torn in two equally strong directions, which you, uh, the viewer, aren't sure he should go so it's not uh do i go and save the universe or stay at home on my farm it's rather do i stay here and fight the enemies uh, on the farm or do i fight the bigger fight right those are both right. two compelling things and it's a difficult choice and that which of those choices you make uh, tells us about you and of course as a writer worth your salt you will make sure that it's the character chooses the direction that is most appealing to the audience and the one that they really want to uh, see them, uh, undergo. And maybe there's a terrible lesson that you learn. You might go down the wrong path and realize that that's a dead end and have to go back to the other path. But at all points, you want to have a passionately engaged character who wants something. And if you don't have that, you're focused on a secondary character and you need to find the character in the story who does want something and write about them. And I think, uh, Once I become very emphatic, yes, and you just nod in agreement. Nodding, of course, doesn't super work. Nodding is not
1: ideal podcast uh, etiquette, kids. Right.
0: So I think we've we've formed the strong motivation to uh, say that this uh, segment uh, is fully complete, has a period on the end. Victory has been achieved. We've found ourselves. We found ourselves, and it's time to move on to our uh, final, perhaps somewhat paradoxical, but. Suit up, agents of
1: Delta Green. Your battle to save humanity from unnatural horrors is going beyond the beltway.
0: With Delta Green the Labyrinth now shipping in beautiful and weaponizable hardcover to a secure dead drop near you. Written by Delta Green co-creator John Scott
1: Tynes, this all-new collection of organizations dives deep into the fissures of America in the new millennium.
0: From the loathsome servitors of the one percent to the hard scrabble faithful of the rust belt from the abusive warrens of the internet to the lonely chambers of every human heart from the toxic legacy of the cold war to the doomed idealists trapped in a world they cannot save. American life has entered a labyrinth of twisty,
1: turny passages. And while there are many ways in, There is no way out. Unless knowledge is a way out. In which case, find ArcDream Publishing's Delta Green The Labyrinth at your game purveyor of choice. Disclaimer knowledge is not a way out.
0: So, normally on this show, if I talk about time machines, the segment is called Ken's Time Machine, and it's one in which Ken is sent back in time to alter history. But this time around, we're not talking about putting Ken in a time machine, but we're going to have Ken talk about a time machine, which means we go in that grab bag of huts, that most mysterious of huts, the ones where the uh, alien big cat is screaming out on the moor and the uh, gray alien and the Nordic alien are drinking a kombucha because we've entered the Elliptony hut. This time, however, it's a particularly uh, reverent version of the Elliptony hut because uh, this time machine, Ken, belonged to the Vatican and it it wasn't one that your, your popes and cardinals used to travel literally back in time, but it was a time viewer that they could use to exactly. look back in time. Uh, the chronovisor and uh, the uh, inventor uh, slash patron of the chronovisor was a fellow named uh, Father Pellegrino Maria Ernetti. Uh, and at this point, uh, you're going to pick us up, Ken, and, and uh, tell us exactly how the chronovisor came to be and uh, what might have been glimpsed uh, through it. Right.
1: The chronovisor begins as Father Pellegrino Arnetti, uh in Venice. He's a Benedictine priest. He's 27 years old. It's 1952. I'm painting a picture here with details, Robin. And he's <laughs> attempting to fix, to, to sweeten recordings of Gregorian chants. And he's screwed around with uh, recordings. And at some point, He's uh, got all of his uh, reel-to-reels and his whatnot set up, and he hits uh, record, and when he plays it back, he has accidentally recorded the voice of a dead priest. Now, you might say that an, an ordinary priest, a regular priest, would uh, say, I was drinking too much, I've screwed it up, or would go on to invent Rowdy voices and EVP eight years early, but not our boy Pellegrino. Uh, Father Arnetti, uh, being a Pythagorean, a devotee of the old, uh, laws and, uh, and study of music believed that maybe Pythagoras had a point and that music was an eternal phenomenon that once you've played a note of music, uh, that note continues forever in the crystal spheres of the cosmos. And so if that's true of music, what about people's lives? Because people's lives are like music. Their light and shadow and sound created by God, they leave a trace in the world, uh, the trace of the soul. Why can't that be picked up by a simple chronovisor piece of equipment? And
0: And also, if if you're a a priest and you record uh, the voice of a dead colleague... You know it's not a ghost right? Uh, because your colleague has gone to heaven. So there's only one possibility, which is that you've recorded the past. Right. That's just Vatican 101. Right. That's standard. That that That's in the catechism.
1: Um, what if I hear the voice of a dead colleague? Uh, were they a good colleague? Yes. Then they're in heaven. Were they a bad colleague? Then they're in hell. Oh, then I must have recorded the past. It's not a ghost. Anyway, so uh, they uh, assign according to, huh, I don't know if this is according to Father Ernetti, because Father Ernetti... While a, a, a guy who sort of, well, he's the sort of person who starts building machines to record the voices of the Pythagorean spheres. I think that the real sort of problem child in this is another priest named Father Francois Brune, who also had a side career of writing elliptony books. And Father Brune and Father Ernetti, and according to Father Brune, Enrico Fermi built the chronovisor, uh, and they built it. It has a antenna capable of receiving all harmonic r- vibrations, a tuner uh, similar to an oscilloscope like you do. Often, Robin, you'll be screwing around with an oscilloscope. You'll discover you're picking up vibrations from the crystal spheres and recording equipment, which I guess is just a standard like reel-to-reel. And then eventually a motion picture camera, and so they looked at speeches by Mussolini and Napoleon. They they were in Rome by now, so they're um you know jinking around through Roman history. Uh, they find uh, a vegetable market in the time of Trajan uh, at one point, and this is the sort of thing that strikes me as as like a, a a real fun human detail. Father Ernetti, rather than jump right to the crucifixion, says, "Wait a second. Quintus Ennius's play Thaestes has been lost for centuries. Let's see if we can find a performance of it and record that. And uh, they did.
0: See, Father er- Ernetti, uh, if, if podcasts had existed, it would be Father Ernetti talks about stuff. I'm pretty exactly.
1: Sure this, yeah. Very, very much so. And um, so then after they've got the vital question of the script of Thaestes solved, someone says, all right, all right, stop screwing around. We are at the Vatican. Let's go find Jesus. And guess what they did. Uh, according to the Chronovisor, Jesus was crucified in 36 AD. They saw him give uh, speeches and sermons, and then they saw his trial and execution. and they saw the resurrection. They saw the big bright light of uh, jesus's resurrection and so recorded
0: this all on reel to reel that we have we access recorded to it all
1: on a film medium according to father ernetti it looked like uh shadows projected through alabaster as if we were seeing through a crystal which i don't know if that's a, a priest joke about good old saint paul and uh, seeing things through a glass darkly uh father Arnetti decided this was the astral record is his name for the uh, Pythagorean sphere recording.
0: So this was an experience of a reflection, right?
1: Yeah. And, and so uh they, they bounced around. Um He addressed a parapsychological Congress in 1966 about his chronovisor. He did not show them his film of Jesus. Apparently the Pope uh Pope Pius, the 12th said, don't show your film of Jesus to anyone possibly <laughs> for a lot of good reasons. And then, they uh maybe translated the original Ten Commandments or recorded the lectures of Pythagoras. Again, this has got a very strong father. Ernetti gets time on his own chronovisor vibe. And right around the death of John Paul I, Ernetti dismantles the machine and refuses to work it ever again. And we don't know if that's a mean comment about Pope John Paul II or what, but that's what he decided to do. And he went on to his second career of being an exorcist. Which is a perfect capper, I feel like, for Father yeah. Ernetti's career. He died in nineteen ninety-four, and uh it was buried in things Italians thought until in two thousand, a guy named Peter Crassa uh wrote up a beautiful book called Father Ernetti's Chronovisor, which I read at the time and fully recommend. And of course Francois Brun published it in his own uh, collections of elliptony in French, and it leaked out, uh, from him to a guy named Robert Charroux, who was sort of a second tier, uh, von Daniken, uh, he's sort of the, the French Brad Steiger, if, if that, uh, means anything to the kids out there today. And so Robert Charroux sort of let slip the, 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 the facts of the, of the Chronovisor. And that's where it lies today in, in pieces in Rome and or Venice, or maybe in its own little room in the Vatican, happily, purring away and showing you know saint paul preaching protestantism and that's why they don't let you look at it
0: right and if you dismantle your time viewer and then become an exorcist it does not require an enormous leap of deduction to know that finally father ernetti saw the devil mm-hmm. uh, through his time viewer and uh realized that uh you don't want to keep seeing the devil through your time viewer that allows him to exist in all times simultaneously uh, which is something you do not want the devil to be able you to do Do not want. Yes. Right. That's,
1: uh, that's up there in the catechism with, was that a ghost?
0: Right. <laughs> per- perhaps you've even allowed the, uh, the devil to the ancient devil to escape to our modern times and team up with his current self that now you've got two devils. So mm-hmm. no double wonder double. you have to go out and get into the exorcism business. So we don't even have to make that a plot. It already is one, right? That could be the, the beginning of your whole series of, uh, badass exorcist game is, uh, your uh, somewhat unwise uh, mentor has allowed the devil to escape through his time viewer, and it's your job to put him back. Mm -hmm. Lock him back up. Yeah. Now, I understand you've uh, got some other... The the chronovisor is is not Uh, history's only way of looking back into the past. I understand there there are some other examples. Right.
1: Yes, there are. Um, In addition to people, you know, looking through their uh, magic mirrors and seeing what happened in the past, which, of course, happens uh, as late as our buddy John D, um, who used to look in the magic mirrors and he saw what sounds an awful lot like dinosaurs to me uh, walking around. Um, when he d- describes it, um, and he says that there's these huge, scaly animals, uh, rampaging around in a jungle. That sounds like John Dee saw dinosaurs to me. But leaving magic aside, Robin, let's talk science. And we'll begin in 1897 in Liverpool, where a fellow named William Maplebeck and another fellow named Robert Stokes, and these guys are old, uh, established members of society, uh, they work at a, f- a photography lab. Uh, very new science at the time, and they f- theorized that if you reflect something in a mirror, that reflection will reflect in another mirror forever. So what if you set up a pattern of mirrored quartz lenses that just caught the reflections of things from the past? It doesn't matter how long ago something happened as long as the mirror keeps transmitting it forward. Well, having the thought is the father of the deed, they build their machine and they show their cine camera view of old timey Liverpool at, a, at a, a theater in Liverpool and are immediately pelted with fruit and garbage and howls of charlatan and fraud. And so uh, rather than continue their lecture on time viewing, they packed up their time viewer and were never heard from again.
0: If you're going to mess with fun ruiners, don't do it in Liverpool. Do not do it in <laughs> the, Liverpool. The Liverpool fun ruiners
1: come to play. <laughs> they, they, they come hard. Uh, so then uh, we have a fellow named Baird T. Spaulding, who is kind of one of the fathers of the New Age in America. He, and also a Groucho uh, Marx character. He Also, also, um he went to the mysterious East, which may have just been upstate New York. We're not sure. Um, He was born in upstate New York, so he's one of our burned-over district guys. And he had a a number of books that when a uh, mining engineer's widow published them privately, it turned out they sold really, really well. And so, he was like, this is all of my ancient wisdom that I have, and but maybe I have some more ancient wisdom in a trunk in my attic, and I hadn't noted about it. And so, uh, by 1927, and this is one of those stories that is just full of allegedly's, He is approaching or is approached by Cecil B. DeMille, who is making the movie King of Kings about our old buddy, Jesus. And he says, T. Spalding, I understand from your books that you have a time camera. Have you seen Jesus? And what did he look like? And what was everyone wearing? And so Spalding, nothing loath, says, why, yes, I have a time camera. I built it with the brilliant electrical engineer Charles Steinmetz, who has conveniently been dead for four years and cannot contradict my statement that he and I worked with 11 men in Central Asia to build a time camera. And uh Baird D. Spalding fell in with a publisher uh in California named Divorce. Uh And uh Baird Spalding died in Arizona with no money in his pocket because once you're a best-selling author, you fall in with a publisher and trouble... Trouble sets in. <laughs> yeah. But the happy ending is that divorce was shot to death by a jealous husband mere months later. And so both divorce and Spalding well, died. If name
0: divorce. That's, that's eventually going to happen to you.
1: It's, it's going to happen to you. And I just, I, I can't go too deep into this because Baird Spalding and, and I, I think his name is uh, Douglas or Donald Divorce. That's a story worth telling all by itself. But anyway, they had a time camera and then so, they So didn't. perhaps
0: something that a, a Patreon backer might request of us. It could happen. It could happen. I
1: can't see through time, Robin. I only travel no, through it. Exactly. And then uh, the last guy I want to mention is a radionic experimenter. And radionics, as you know, Robin, is the science of examining a blood drop to determine whether someone is ill. And you say, well, that's just regular science, Ken. No, no, no. If you look at a blood drop, you can tell if someone's got uh, like a metal pin in their stomach. And that's where it gets exciting because you have to think very hard about wanting to take a picture of the whole person through the blood drop. It's basically uh, Kirlian photography, but with a blood drop instead of a leaf. And George Delaware said, well, I don't understand why we can only take Pictures of the present with our radionic camera. My wife and I both bled on this sample and we used it and we took a picture of our wedding uh, with my time camera in 1950. And I think that is the, that's a lovely way to go out on time cameras. Yeah. If
0: you lose the original negatives from, from that the photographer took, radionics, there's always a way back. Yep. There's always a way back. And then so the notion
1: of the, well, the missus and I bled on a slide and now we have a picture of our wedding that looks an awful lot like blobs in a blood drop. And that's the best kind of time camera, I feel yeah. like. is
0: when... And why is the devil at our wedding? Oh, why no. Is it all there? We've, we've, we've oh, released the devil. Father Ernetti So we don't need to do the bit where we explain how to turn this into a game scenario because uh, inherent, inherent to your gaming experience. We've already done that. Right. We've got uh, our Vatican exorcists uh, hunting Satan already. So <laughs> yeah. I think uh, uh, later when we look back in time at our recording of this podcast, we will nod uh, which is, again, not great on a podcast. But nonetheless, we will nod and say that we uh, concluded our business here uh, for yet another week. But we'll be back, uh, perhaps unaided by time devices or back to the regular time device next week. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pell Press. Asphagel. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music as always is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get
1: your priority question asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken
0: Robin. Keep the gold leaf from peeling off this podcast by joining such oriate backers as John Kingdon. John W.S. Marvin. Scott Jones. Volker Mont- Tell. And the adventure game store. Wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin Merch at tepublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin.
1: Subtweet your players with our latest design. The players are the red herring.
0: On Twitter he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D Laws. See you next time when once again we will talk about stuff.